Uh, good morning, guys. Um, you know what? I, when I was when I was working uh, as as a missionary, I actually had a um, I, I had a, a dream. Um, uh, part of my dream in the ministry was to sorry, Nate. I should have done this. Part of my my dream as a as a missionary and, and a pastor was to to actually get a group of guys together uh, and 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 learn the word together. So when I came here for me, there was a partial fulfillment of a dream that I had just to be part of this. So if I'm teacher I'm, where I'm here with you guys in the morning, that's a, that's just a dream for me coming true. So I appreciate the, just the opportunity to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, we have, uh, we have an amazing text to study. I'm going to invite you to open your Bible. So Acts chapter 16, we're going to continue on Paul's uh, second missionary journey here. You got some notes in front of you. I hope so. And I just wanted to show you a few pictures here really quickly. Uh, first, I want to give you just an overview of the second missionary journey. Acts chapter 16, our last study, uh, Paul and his companions, they ended up landing in Derby in Lystra. And around this, this area, they meet a, a young boy named Timothy, right? And, and Paul is really impressed with this guy. The community knows him. He goes through this whole process, and we talked a little bit about the... Uh, the circumcision aspect, Paul asked him to go with him in his journeys and, and asked him to be circumcised. So they, they keep on going. And Paul gets to a place called Mycia, which is a little bit northwest of Troas, which is the whole region. And he has what it's known as the Macedonian vision, right? He has a vision about a man asking him pretty much to, to come. And for some reason, God doesn't allow him to go to where he wants to go, but he's leading him in a different direction. So that's kind of like where we find ourselves. So Paul is going. And as I was here earlier going through the PowerPoint, um, Rick was here and said, he looked at the map and he said, I love maps. And he says, that's, that's quite a journey to go either by horse, by camel, by whatever animal that may be, or even by walking. And I said, yeah, that takes a lot of commitment, doesn't it? And so we, we, we truly stand on the shoulders of giants, of, of people who have committed their lives to actually take the gospel beyond uh, Jerusalem. And I think that's a fulfillment, once again, of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right? The, the gospel is going Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, into the other per, parts of the, the world. So let's look really quickly here, just uh, an overview of, of Philippi. I'm not going to go into details. I uh, just want to highlight a few things here for you. Uh, it's, it's, today, is, it's actually um, a really interesting study because it's the first time that Paul is actually going or any missionary is actually going into Europe. So the gospel is really moving away from that local center in Jerusalem, right? So it's moving into that. And in your notes, it says several of the themes common in the book of Acts occur in this scene at Philippi. So some of the things that you see in Philippi are going to be the, thing, the same things that you will see as you move through the book of Acts. Some of them here, like... Uh, Paul is going to minister to the people in the margins of society. Uh, you're going to see a dem demoniac encounter. You're going to see a challenge of vested, uh, vested econ economic interest, persecution, especially for preaching the gospel, not the persecution that we would get sometimes for not driving very well on the highway and you get a finger. That's not what he's talking about here. It's all gospel center, right? So, so Paul is going to mention this, and I, I have this is a statement, but it's partially a joke. Uh, this trip is going to mark Paul. It's going to mark Paul for the rest of his life to the point that he's going to actually mention what's going to take place here in Philippi um, in the next letters. We got it back, Nate. Thank yeah. you. So let's look right here. Uh, 
Acts chapter 16, um, verse 11 and 12, and we'll go through the arrival at Philippi. The arrival at Philippi. It says this, We put out to the sea from Troas and sailed straight course to Semitres. Next, the next day to Neapolis, which means the new city, and we'll look at the irony of that because it's actually not very new. It's about 500 years old by the time Paul gets to that point. So the new city, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading, leading city of that district of Macedonia. So we know there was a very important city. This is just a, an aerial view of uh, what Philippi would have looked like at that time, just one part of it. But the, the city of Philippi, if you had traveled by ship, you, obviously that would have been a lot faster than if you're traveling by foot. It would be a lot cheaper as well. About 100 miles uh, per day by ship and only about 20 miles if you, if you went by foot. And if you were maybe long-legged like some people are, maybe a little bit more. Um, the voyage from your notes right here from Troas to Neapolis was more than 150 miles. So... So what they do is halfway through it, they find a port and they ended up landing in there and they, let me go back here to this picture, which is a little bit better. They ended up landing in this island and the text says that they, they spend pretty much just the night. So they're going to refuel and get some food and just, just get going. Neapolis was located actually, and that's where we go to the second map, in the Via Ignatia Road, which is a very famous road at that, around that, that area that went east and west, okay, west, and just crossed from some of the cities like Philippi and Thessalonica, and probably Paul was going to end up going there and using the same road again in the future. So Philippi actually had been a small city. It was a village, and when the Roman Empire decided to actually make it a colony, they invested, as Pastor David says, they brought a lot of military forces to this area. And when you have a lot of military forces, you became very well protected. So the city began to grow, and it was a Roman city, not too many Jews in the area, and began to grow. And one of the things that the Roman Empire actually argued for and, 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 and fought to have in every single colony was law and order. Now, you got to remember that as we move into the text right now, why that's going to be um, one of the things that Paul and his companions are going to struggle with, especially in the relationship between the slave girl and her owners, okay? So law and order. Verse 12 says here that we stay in the city for some days. So we don't know how many, but we know it was more than one. They, did just, they didn't stay just overnight. They stayed there for a few days. Now let's get into the, into the meat and bones here of this text. Verse 13 to 15, we see the encounter with Lydia. Once again, listen to what the text says. On the Sabbath day, which is exactly what Paul usually does, right? He finds a place. Every place he goes, he finds a synagogue. They meet on the Sabbath. But the problem is, as we'll see, Philippi doesn't have a synagogue. So listen to this. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate to the, to the, to the side of the river where we thought there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began to speak to the woman who had a symbol there. A woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Tyre, a God-fearing woman, listened to us. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After, listen to this, after she and her household were, bap were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me 
to be a believer in the Lord, come and stay in my house. And she persuaded us. Now, let me notice a few things here. First of all, is the place. So they encounter Lydia, and I want to mention to you about the place. So without a synagogue, they find a place that maybe the Jews would be meeting. And, and, and part of this is the text says that Paul makes an, uh, an assumption. He says, we suppose to, that the people would be outside by the river. Well, it was for cleans, cleansing purposes, right? So the Jews actually gathered together, and they thought that by being outside, gathered by a body of water, that would provide them cleansing in their soul and everything else for community. So they go outside, they find this place, and it's a place where they see a group of women meeting together. The second thing that we learn is the person. So the Lydia, Lydia was actually from Tyre. Once again, remember, Mycenae is the region that Paul was going into, and God says, no, you're going to go a different direction. You're going to go to Macedonia. Lydia was just from a, a place called Lydia, right? And I think we'll talk about the name in just a second, but Thyatira region. So Lydia was in Europe, moving from Asia Minor into Europe. So here's what we see in your notes, page two. What we know about her, about the person, well, we know her name. Most likely, Lydia was actually a nickname, not her real name, because back in the day, the Lydian kingdom actually conquered the area. So it's kind of like um, you talk about me as, as, a, as, as a gaúcho or a cowboy because I grew up in a state in Brazil where the cowboys were. So that's, if you were in Brazil, that's what people would call me to, right? So they're calling this lady Lydia because she was from the Lydian kingdom, which makes, which makes sense. She's from Thyatira. If you remember Revelation chapter 2, that's one of the churches that... John is going to mention in there, or Jesus is going to mention in there. Second, she was a dealer in purple. Now, this was a very expensive pro uh, um, product. It came from Tyre in Phoenicia, uh, where small amounts of murex dye were extracted in great quantities from, uh, from sh uh, shellfish. So it was, it was a really difficult process. And she was a business lady who worked in that area. So she's right here. The text is describing her as a dealer in purple. But the thing that, that it, that's interesting is that she's a God-fearing woman, okay? She's a person that fears the Lord, which is a common designation or, or a description of a Gentile woman who actually believes in God, who has embraced Judaism, but... Maybe she doesn't know, as we'll see, she doesn't know the true meaning of Christianity because she hasn't still met, she hasn't met yet the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Luke gives us uh, an insight in here, I think, of, of what our life should look like as we relate to the gospel and how God actually interacts with people. Look at verse 14 again. Let me read that again for you. A woman named Lydia assembled there, a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, Thyatira a God-fearing woman, listened to us, and the Lord, listen, the Lord opened her heart. Now, if it is gospel-related, it must be God doing it, all right? If it is gospel-related, it must be God doing it. And this is exactly what Paul is describing here. So he's giving us that. But here's another thing that's interesting. Not only the place and the person, but also, I think, the proof of her belief. It's back name. Yeah, it's 
Maybe I'm clicking too hard in here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, the proof of her belief. All right, listen, verse, verse 15, it says, this is, this is a, once again, it talks about according to Luke, baptism, follow Lydia and her family's conversion. Now, the text says here, and this can be a little confusing. It says, after she and her household were baptized, it's almost like, okay, she believed and her household believed or was baptized because of her belief, but that's not a, a conditional clause here. It's an individual calling for everyone to be believing in Jesus in order to be baptized. And we don't have time to do this, but if you can jot that down, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, it talks about repent. And there's a conditional clause, and not a conditional clause, but there's a separate clause in there that consequently, based on your belief, you will be baptized, right? So you repent first, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you'll be baptized. And this is exactly what's happening, which gives the indication that not only Lydia believed, but her entire household believed, and they follow suit in baptism. Now, here's, here's just an application. Did Paul expect... Um, to find, as his first conversation, a group of women sitting by the river? I would say probably not. So I put right here, any gospel effort that's worthwhile will require flexible, a flexible spirit. And by flexible, I don't mean lazy. <laughs> okay? I don't mean, okay, God's going to do it, so I'm just going to sit back here and relax. No, there's no synagogue here. Let me find a different way of accomplishing this, right? Is flexibility ever worked for you? Have you ever felt flexibility being something God can use to actually move the gospel forward? Oh, it certainly has in my life. Now, let's move to the slave girl's um, encounter here. Verse 16 through 18. Listen to what it says. Now, as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit that enable her to foretell the future, future by supernatural, supernatural means. She brought her owners a great prophet by fortune teller. She followed behind Paul and us and kept crying out, these men are servant of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued to do this for many days, but Paul became greatly annoyed. Would you? Okay, just checking became greatly annoyed, and turned out and said to the Spirit, I commend you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Now, let's go through some, some few things. Your fear, and this is a statement from your, from your notes, your fear of, of confusing biblical prophecy with pagan practice, practice, Luke avoids the use of the typical term prophesying. So she's not prophesying here, okay? She's just proclaiming, and her ability as a spirit of divination here refers to a, a pagan god, probably. Most scholars debate this, but the, 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 major, the majority of them actually agree that there's a pagan god called the Python, which was a serpent god, and it was, it was a demoniac spirit that gave people the ability to actually foresee the future and make divination. So mostly she's under that influence here. But here's what we know which is really interesting. She, she is a money, she, she, she produces money, like money produced here. And we see this in verse 16, that the, the slave girl had a spirit that enabled her to foretell the future by supernatural means. And it says this, she brought her owners a great prophet 
of great profit by fortune telling. The spirit actually, this supernatural power enables her to, to see the future and is making them some cash. Now, every time you see, they didn't have this symbol in there, but every time you see this, you always will see a conflict with the gospel. And I'm going I'm I'm to make a point in just a second here, so just, just, just hang in there. She produces money. Her supernatural gifts actually brought them tremendous gain, right? And now if you're a business owner and you are a person who does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be a little bit upset when your business actually just crumbles, right? And I think this is exactly what's going to happen. Look at this. She's going she's gonna to proclaim a message, verse 17. She followed behind Paul and us and kept crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, if you were a pastor or a missionary and you were in a place like Philippi and you're proclaiming the gospel, would you feel the urge to rebuke her for telling everybody that you are, listen, I'm going to read again, that these men, you are servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming the way of salvation. Would you, would you feel the urge to rebuke her? So, so there's some possibilities here, but here's what we know. As we read this, as we glance through this, one thing that we would think that when she says this, listen to this, these men are the servant of the Most High God, that that's kind of like, she's 100% accurate here, right? But this was a description of the God that was influencing her to make demoniac foretelling the future provisions, right? So, so she's in one way, she's associating, associating Paul and his companions with the proclamation that her God would receive when he was being proclaimed, right? So in one way, we think, oh, it's the most high God, but it's, that, that expression is never used for servants of the Lord. But here's what she's actually saying, right, which is the irony of this. <laughs> they are proclaiming that way of salvation, it's not one way of salvation or a way of salvation. They're proclaiming the way because Christ is the way, the truth of the life. So there is, there is some truth in her statement, and she is proclaiming a message, but, but Paul gets to a point where he is a little annoyed in verse 18. And so we see a miracle being performed here. Verse 18, let me read it again for you. She continued to do this for many days, and, and here's, Here's a statement. We only know that she did that for many days. We don't know how often she was doing that every day. If she came in the morning and she proclaimed that maybe once every day, perhaps Paul would not be annoyed at this point. But she's doing this. I got to confess here. I have two little girls and I love them and sometimes they ask me the same thing five times and I get really annoyed by it. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, she's, uh, she's, she loves to read. Like yesterday, we, I picked her up from ballet, and we, we had to get some bread. So on the way home, we stopped by the grocery store, and she grabs a book. She's walking behind, walking, listen, she's walking behind me in the grocery store reading. I'm, I'm not even sure how she does that. She's reading it, 
And I'm talking to her, and obviously she doesn't know anything that I'm saying, so I have to repeat myself multiple times, and I'm thinking, how many times did Paul have to repeat himself in there? Just don't do this. The text says Paul was actually irked in his spirit. But here's, here's, here's the interesting thing about this. I want, I want, to, make, I want to make an application here, maybe, maybe a, a personal point here. Look at this. I commend, when Paul says that he's annoyed and he performs a miracle, he says this, I commend you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to come out of her. What Paul, who is Paul is commending here is not the girl. He's not commending her. He's actually commending the spirit. Like he, he turns to her, to the girl, to the spirit, to her, and he says to the spirit, not to the girl. Which makes sense because in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, what, did, what does Paul say when he talks about the spiritual battles in there? He says this, for our struggle is not against what? It's not against her. But it's against, he says three things, against rulers, authorities, and powers. And in, in the description of those three things, he says, of this dark world. So he's not fighting against his lady, he's fighting for her. And the miracle that's being performed here, just like the miracle of salvation, is actually done for us. And I think that's what he does here. So my question for you here is that do you turn to the Spirit or your own strength in, in order to accomplish a task? How often do you do that? Yeah, I, I heard somebody, I heard a pastor one time saying that the first thing he does in the morning, he rolls out of bed so he can go and fall right on his knees. I think that's an application here. Because Paul's not doing that on his own strength. Just like he said, he gave God the glory for, listen, he gave God the glory in the beginning when she believed, right? When Lydia believed, now he's giving God the glory and he's saying the name of Jesus, not in my name or in my own power. And I think that's a good thing for us who are husbands and for us who are striving to become one one day or for us who for you guys who might have grandkids it's not your own doing it is the lord in every area of life even the most complicated ones like a demon possessed girl but here's what i have learned it may not be much so i'll just just give it to you i think if i can learn to trust the lord in the small things then i'll be able to trust him with a little bit bigger things because I think those things built upon each other. And I think that's what's happening here. Now, look what happens. You would think that, that there's a celebration here. This girl is now able to be normal again, right? But no, Paul is going to be beaten and imprisoned for the gospel. And this is verse 19 through 24. Now, here, here's the first, th first thing we see. We see some false accusation here. False accusations before the magistrates, right? Or the officials, the guys who are going to keep the law in place. Rather than a mere fine for economic damage, which was actually normal in that time, the owners of this girl, they go and they accuse Paul of criminal actions, right? And here's what they, here's what they say. The first one is, the first accusation, and you guys let me know if this is true or not. They say that they were throwing our city into confusion. Was Paul doing that? I don't think so. 
The verb here that's used for that accusation is causing a riot to take place or disorder. Did they cause a riot? There was disorder? No. And once again, going back to what I said earlier, the Romans actually prided themselves for law and order. So they need to keep this place in order. So if somebody brings an accusation, hey, um, Ron is actually causing a riot here in Westfield. (laughs) The guys are going to come over and say, hey, listen, you can't do that. Because we've got to keep this place under law and order. Now, the second thing we see is, and I don't know if this is an accusation or if it's an unverified observation, which is they are Jews. The text says that they were saying these guys are Jews. They could have at least have asked the question. But they have an agenda. And when your agenda does not meet God's agenda, you might do things just like this one right here. And they say they're Jews. This accusation was calculated. It was brought before the, uh, the officers. And they're inciting the crowd. They're, they're, they're causing confusion here. And here's the third thing. They're advocating unlawful customs. Did you notice everything is against the Roman here? It's not about the girl. <laughs> There's nothing about the girl here. It's all about the Roman and, and, and law and order. Which literally... If you were doing something to get somebody else to get in trouble, you would go for the source and say, hey, they're doing something that offends you. Would you deal with them? And that's what they do. With no investigation and, and with the support of the crowd, actually the magistrates take, magistrates take action, and it's a negative action. Now, they're fiercely beaten and imprisoned for the gospel. Look at verse 22. The crowd joined the attack against them, and the magistrates tore, their, tore, tore the clothes off of Paul and Silas and ordered them to be beaten with rods. Now, just the tearing of clothes here would be a humiliation for anybody, right? The removal of one's clothes would have been a humiliation, humiliation especially to a Jew. The scourging would have been severe based upon the wounds that needed to be cleaned later on, right? So this, those guys were beaten. So as Roman citizens, here's a question for you. Knowing that Paul was able to actually use his Roman card, why didn't he do that? Why did Paul choose to get beat up instead of just saying, I am a Roman citizen, therefore you cannot do that to me. You cannot punish me that way. Tim. All right, he was God's citizen first, okay? Okay, maybe he looked at the example of Christ. There's a, there's a statement here in your notes. It says, most likely a court case over the charge of teaching foreign superstitions would have entangled them in a protracted trial with an uncertain outcome, so it would delay them from accomplishing the things God wanted to accomplish, Right? So he's choosing to be beat up. Now, let me ask you a question. When, when was the last time you chose to be beat up for the gospel? To be able to accomplish something for the Lord. I don't think any one of us have been in that situation. And I'm not asking you to do that. Right, please don't go outside today and say, Pastor Michael said, go get beat up so I can proclaim to God. That's not, that's not the point. What Paul is saying is he made a choice that would be beneficial for the gospel. Okay? Now, for Paul's accused crime, the beating should have sufficed. However, 
the officers here, they imprison Paul and, 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 and they put him in the inner cell in verse 24, which one scholar says, poor ventilation created conditions of dangerous, stale air, as well as suffocating heat and dehydration. Now, this is the description of a prison cell in Brazil. Where a space for five people becomes a place for, a place for 25. And this is normal. Might be surprising to us, but not overseas. Maybe the conditions were a little bit different. But yes, it was not a good place to be, especially in stocks with wounds on your back. Now, here's what happens. We not only see that, but we see deliverance. And we see that both physically and spiritually. Now, there's, there's some things, you know, I think I want this is what I want to highlight to you. What, what, what Luke's actually describing here, he's describing what Paul's and, Paul and Silas' circumstances generated. And what was created here was an evangelistic opportunity for God to work through them. Okay? Despite of all the difficulties that they're facing. Here's, here's the first thing that we see. We see, I think, confusion. And we notice that in verse 25 and 26 that this miraculous thing happens where suddenly a great earthquake takes place and the foundations of the prison were shaking. Immediately, all the, prison, all, all the doors flew open and the bonds of all the prisoners came loose. Now, maybe if one of those things happened to one person, it would be uh, maybe an accident, but all the stocks were open, all the doors were open, the, the place was shaking, so there's a confusion here. But just like the Lord actually opened Lydia's heart, He's going to take place in this situation too, how He opened the prison doors. The problem for the jailer here was not the earthquake. Listen to this. It was not the earthquake, but rather that he had been asleep when the prisoners were supposed to be under his care, right? Now, listen to this. There's a confirmation. And the confirmation takes place here when, when he comes to his sense, he runs in there and he, he, he's trying to make sure that the, the people are still in there, that they haven't left. And when the jailer, verse 27 says, the prisoner, when the jailer woke up and saw that the doors of the prisons were standing open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because, listen, he assumed, he made an assumption that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out loudly. And I think this is a desperation in Paul's calling here. He says, do not harm yourselves for we are all here. Not all like Paul and Silas, but all of us who were here before, we're still here. He's about to take his own life. But Paul says, no, don't worry about it. Don't do that. There's a confirmation here. Don't harm yourself. I think the reason why for him to try to, let's say, kill himself in this sense was because under law, if a prisoner actually escaped, let's say Ron had done something wrong and, and he killed somebody, and Ron escapes under my watch, I would suffer the consequences of Ron's crimes. Now, if there's a group of people in there most likely some of them had killed somebody. Now it would fall under him. So he comes and in desperation, he's about to take his own life. And the point here is how terrific, how terrified the jailer and the prisoners were. But how Paul and Silas actually show love and concern for the jailer by remaining there. The same love and concern that they did not receive from the officers who brought them, punished them, and threw him in jail. 
Do you see how countercultural this is? Nate. Uh, why do you think that's the other prisoners? The, the text doesn't say. We, we can expect, speculate. You know that we know from the text that Paul and Silas were singing and praying and, and doing all those things. Perhaps there was an interaction in there. Perhaps they were talking to the people. Perhaps they're, they're witnessing to them. We don't know. There was no reason for it. But what we know is that they all stay, and Paul actually is used by God to save this guy's life physically, right? But here's what's about to happen. Look how confusion leads to a confirmation that everybody's there, and it's going to lead to a conversation. Verse 29 through 20 to 31, they have a conversation here. And calling for lights, the jailer rushed in and fell down, trembling at Paul's feet. Then he brought them outside and asked, Sirs, which is the word here, Kyrios, which is the word Lord, that's used for Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So he calls Paul Lord, okay? Pay attention because this is important. It says, um, Lord, what must I do to be saved? Which is a typical question of a man, right? What do I need to do to be saved? Isn't that what we do when we meet each other? Hey, I'm Michael. What do you do? Right? And this is what's happening. So, so listen to what it says. They reply, both Paul and Silas, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You in your household. Not you believe in your household will be saved, but believe in the Lord Jesus. You in your household believe and you'll be saved. Okay? So there's, there's a conversation here. And so the sir here is really interesting because now Paul is called Lord, but he's going to say, no, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. And the conversation generates a conversion, leads to a conversion, verse 32 and 33. Listen to what it says. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and honestly, I wish I was there. I wish I was there. I mean, I needed to understand Greek and Hebrew and all those things as they were talking here. But I wish I could understand what this meant to them. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with all those who were in the house. And at the hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and, he and all his family were baptized right away. Notice that conversion happens when the word of the Lord spoken. You see what the text says? When the word of the Lord, when they spoke the word of the Lord to him, they believed. And this will lead to a celebration. Verse 34. The jailer brought them into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced greatly that he had come to believe in God. Listen to what the celebration is about. It's not about Paul being free. It's about that he rejoiced greatly for he had come to believe in God. So here's one thing that I want to point out to you as you think about this, this passage. One of the things that you see here is that fellowship is a key important part of the Christian life. It was here for this man. It was there in the beginning of our text with Lydia. Fellowship is a key element of this part. So let me finish this text because we're running out of time here. The final moments in Philippi. We see the authorities order, and this is a very ironic passage because the men say, release those men, right? In verse 30, 35 and 36, 
The jailer reported, verse 36, the words of Paul saying, the officers have sent orders to release you, so come out now and go in peace. Paul says, uh, I don't think so. So the authorities now are fearful. Verse 37, but Paul said to the, to the police or to the officers, they have beaten us in public without a proper trial, even though we're Roman citizens and they threw us in prison. And now they want us to, they want to send us away secretly? Absolutely not. They themselves must come and escort us out. The police officers reported these, these words to the magistrates, magistrates. They were frightened, not just fearful, but frightened when they heard Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. Once again, they could have been killed based on their actions. Luke highlights the seriousness of this, and he indicates here how, how fearful they were and how apologetic they were. But Paul's demand for a public apology served as a protection for social allies left behind in Philippi. So he's doing this, I believe, in order to protect Lydia and the girl and the jailer. And lastly, there's freedom. Verse 40. When they came out of the prison, they entered Lydia's house, and when they saw the brothers, they encouraged them and then departed. Now, do you realize, once again, fellowship they're not just going home. There's fellowship. Now, here's a test for you. You have three applications in there. I'm not going to go through them. But here's what I want to tell you. When you go home this week and you have some time for yourself, read through this text again, and I want you to highlight three things. I want you to highlight the words, them, we, and us in this text. The word them referring to Paul and Silas, and we and us referring to Paul and his companions. And you will be amazed how the gospel is not a one-man show. Okay? I'm just going to give you the number here. Forty-one times you see those three words in this text. So next time that you have the, like I do sometimes, the all-powerful all, uh, all man syndrome, you just need to remember, this is not about you, but it's the Lord's doing. And when it's gospel-related, it's always his work, right? Tom, want me to pray? Father, just thank you so much for this time. It is such an impressive text, and it's, we could have gone a lot farther in here, just studying. And, and Father, we just praise you because your word is, is, is alive. And Father, I pray that all of us will realize that there is power in unity here. There's power in the gospel and the gospel provides fellowship. And so we praise you. Who could ever imagine that Paul would, Paul, God would use Paul to start a church with a woman named Lydia, with a former demon-possessed girl, and with a guy who was a jailer about to kill himself in prison. Father, you are majestic. Thank you so much. It was a good day today in Jesus' name. Amen.